All right, good morning. Our passage this morning is Psalm 99. Psalm 99. The Lord reigns. Let the people tremble. He is enthroned between the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted above all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awe-inspiring name. He is holy. The mighty king loves justice. You have established fairness. You have administered justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Bow and worship at his footstool. He is holy. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel was also among those calling on his name. They called to the Lord and he answered them. He spoke to them in a pillar of cloud. They kept his decrees and the statutes he gave them. The Lord our God answered them. You are a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their sinful actions. Exalt the Lord our God and bow in worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. Well, if you're just joining us or or didn't know, each summer we spend a handful of weeks in the Psalms with our plan being to, to one day preach and teach through every psalm in the Bible. There's 150 of them, and so at our current pace, it's going to take about 15 to 20 years. Okay, so you thought our sermon series in 1 Corinthians was long. This is a long sermon series, a 15 to 20 year sermon series. Um, but, but every summer, we get together as a community to unpack a few of the psalms. And this year, we have prioritized psalms that center on who God is. Uh, what he uh, says he is, the, the main parts about him, his character. And so last week, Dave um, preached from uh, Psalm 34 to talk about God's goodness. And this week, like, as I'm sure you caught up uh, or caught on to in our Psalm, uh, in, in Psalm 99, we are going to hope to catch a glimpse of God's holiness. God's holiness. And so if you're not a Christian at this point, but just an onlooker, this is actually a great sermon series for you because over the course of the summer, we are going to unpack who this God is. And so um, you might have categories built out for you that you didn't uh, to historically associate with, with God, the, the, the God of the, the Bible. And, and or you, you might just encounter some of these qualities in new ways. Like, I didn't know that God was good like that, or I didn't know that God was forgiving like that, or when, when, when I heard that God was just, I didn't know it meant this. Um, so this is going to be a great sermon series for you um, if you um, don't call yourself a Christian yet, but are just looking in from the outside at this point investigating. This is a great series for your investigation. Uh, now, for the rest of us who are Christians, um, this can be the temptation when it comes to unpacking God's character. Um, it, it, it goes like this. I got this. I already learned this growing up, or, or I learned this when I read through the Bible myself, or, or whatever. I, I know that God is good already. I know that he's holy. I know that he's gracious, merciful, power, loving. I, I got it. I got those things down. And, and that's great that you have these categories for God, but, but our God is infinite, which means that these categories run deep. They run deep. And, and it's possible, even tempting, that, that once you have the categories down, uh, to, to move on uh, without actually appreciating their depths. But their depths are deep, 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 as our God is, is great. Um, I was mountain biking with my brother-in-law about a year ago in Durango, Colorado. Um, And after our bike ride, I hopped in the car 
And he said, hey, hold on, get out. We're not done yet. I actually parked here because we, we, we want to walk down. I want to walk down like this little stream over here. Um, and I was like, okay. My brother-in-law is kind of like a big dude, like 6'4", you know, 220. I don't know, big goatee of a guy, big mountaineering guy from Durango, Colorado. Um, I said, okay, this guy wants to walk by a stream. Uh, let's go do that. Let's go walk by a stream after the, the bike ride. I'm sure it'll be a little bit refreshing. Um, and before long, uh, we were not walking along a stream. Um, we were walking in a stream. I was ankle deep in, in my biking shoes, uh, slippering, slip, 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 slippery rocks and shoes that weren't meant to, you know, come in contact with the ground. Um, ironic, biking shoes. Um, but anyway, so we're, we're ankle deep in the stream. Then all of a sudden we're, we're knee deep. Then we're, we're flirting with the waistline. And I'm like, what has this guy gotten me into? Um, this is my brother-in-law who almost killed me on a catamaran the first time I met him. I meet this guy, and he almost kills me about an hour later, okay? Okay, and so, so I'm like, what has this guy gotten me into? We're walking in this stream that's narrowed down, and there's, you know, 15, 20-foot canyon walls on either side at this point, and it's narrowed down to where the water is just rushing really fast, and so there's actually no going back. There's no going back. Um, the only way out is forward. And, and he says he's done this, walked along this stream, quote unquote, uh, several times, and, and he loves it. And so I said, okay, you know what? He, he knows what he's doing. I'll follow him. We'll go down. And then we came to a small little waterfall. Nothing big, just like a few feet. And so we slipped down it, and then all of a sudden we're plunged in the water, and, and my head's underwater. And then there's another one of those. <laughs> and, and then there's one where we come up to, and we actually have to jump into a pool of water down below and there's some of them that we have to climb up the sides in order to jump to a pool of water that can then hold us. And this is like a really crazy ride. I'm getting taken to and fro, bumping into rocks here and there. And then at the very end, there's one final big jump that opens up into a clearing. And there's a bunch of people um, actually climbing rock walls on the sides in this big, beautiful clearing. And they all hiked in the back way, you know, instead of coming down this way. Of course, they're a little smarter. Uh, but they all cheered us as we made the final jump into this place. And, and, and I was very thankful to my guide uh, because this trip, journey, honest, honestly, it, it, it was a thrill. It was really fun. But I was also thankful to my guide that he didn't tell me exactly everything that was coming my way at the beginning. He, he didn't uncover everything that the, this stream was. And, and this is a bit how a relationship with the God of the universe is. You think you have categories for him. I thought I knew what a stream was. Uh, but, but once you discover it, it's moving and it's progressing and it's getting deeper and deeper, you, you, you find out more and more of who this God is. Uh, I found out more and more what a stream could be. You, you have a God the whole time who's there telling you where to step, where to jump, where to climb. That's Jesus Christ, by the way. And you come to points where you slide down waterfalls and you feel the rush of a deeper understanding of this incredible God. You get to points where you have to jump and it's a bit scary, a bit shocking. There's tons of uncertainty, but it's a thrill. And you keep going, uh, not really knowing what's around the next corner, but, but you go deeper and deeper anywhere. There's, there's no real way out. I mean, who, where else would I go? And it's full of joy as you slide and slide and jump deeper and deeper into who God is. This is what discovering God is like. It's not all roses, though, okay? It has some scrapes and bruises. I came out of that with scrapes and bruises, okay? But it's good. And, and today we dive, dive deeper into God's holiness, his holiness, which is why we have come to Psalm 99. 
We don't know who wrote this psalm, and it, is, it exists as a unit in the psalms, actually going back to Psalm 93. Psalms 93 through 99 are known as the enthronement psalms, the enthronement psalms. These are seven anonymously written psalms that dive into the enthronement, not of the king of Israel, which is what most of the psalms are actually about, right? David struggles as a king, assuming the throne. David's not writing these, okay? This is about the enthronement of the God of Israel. Several of them start with the phrase, the Lord reigns like ours did. He is king. He's enthroned over where? The entire creation. And these seven psalms pick up on and highlight different elements of this reigning God king. And and you probably caught the emphasis of this one as I read it. God is holy. He's holy. Now we have our work cut out for us today because God's holiness is probably the aspect of God that we lean on the least when trying to describe him. If anyone were to ask you who the God is that you come here on Sunday mornings to worship, what descriptors would would you use? But perhaps you might point to his greatness or his goodness or the things that he's done in your life, uh, and and that'd be good. Or or maybe you would redirect to Jesus and start uh, describing Jesus. Um, That's usually a pretty good plan. That's usually a pretty good play. But but, but, but you wouldn't actually describe his holiness when you're talking about Jesus. You might talk about um, his love for you. You might talk about his goodness for you. You might talk about his plan for you. You might talk about this Christ who, who gave up everything so that he could be with you but you probably wouldn't talk about his holiness. Here's the rub. After God's omni-qualities, you know, like the fact that he's all-powerful and all-present and everywhere, like these, just these facts of who God is generally, kind of the scope of God, after those qualities, which are very important, God's holiness and his goodness, like Dave preached on last week, are the most two important qualities of him because on top of those foundational blocks spring all of his other qualities like his forgiveness and his love and his, his mercy uh, you, and his justice. You really can't understand those other qualities without these foundational elements. You can begin to try to understand that God is just. You can begin to understand that God is loving and gracious and merciful, but you really won't be able to grasp it on a deeper level until you have the foundation of God's goodness and God's holiness set for you which is why we've started with these two. They really open the doors to all the other parts of him. That's why we started with him, okay? So, so let's do it today. Let's start with his holiness. And we're gonna do three things with regards to God's holiness this morning. First, we need to unpack what holiness is because our author has something particular in mind when he uses that word that we need to understand in order to understand him. Then we're gonna look at what the psalmist says God's holiness produces in the world. Okay, it produces two things in the world. And then finally, we will dive into how it interacts with humanity, with us, which is the, the really exciting thing that God's holiness would interact with an unholy humanity, okay? He is holy. All right, so, 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 so let's start with he is holy. What exactly does our author have in mind? Now, holiness is difficult for us to define because it's a character trait of God that we really don't have equivalents for in our experience, Like, if you tell me God is merciful or gracious or loving or even just, I have categories for those qualities based on the experience of my life. Examples of them come to mind. I've seen and experienced glimpses of of those things, and all I need to do is just uh, purify them and and deepen them, perhaps, for, for God. But holiness, that's not really part of the human experience, is it? 
Now, if you grew up in the Western church like I did, and you were really put on the spot and asked to define holiness, you might say something like that God's holiness means that he is set apart. And that's not wrong. Or, or you might say that God's holiness points to how he is sacred, that, that, that is, he's completely pure and perfect. And that's not really wrong either. But those articulations spring out of something bigger and richer than, than, than those things. In the Bible, the idea of God's holiness is really rooted in God as this incredible, powerful being that created the entire universe that powerfully and majestically pulled everything together in such beauty, right? We look out at the creation, we say, oh my gosh, this is incredibly beautiful. And then more than that, he sourced life itself. He sourced us, the animals, the plants, all of it. And it's this reality of God based on what he's done that we can see that makes him completely and utterly unique, that's the meaning and essence of, of the word holy, utterly unique in, in power and perfection, a being that had the power to pull together this creation and make it look this beautiful. If we were to meet who that being really is, oh my gosh, can you imagine it? Can you imagine? It's like no being that we could ever imagine. Can't even wrap our heads around it. He's grand and powerful and beautiful on such an ex- enormous level that when creation begins to contemplate him correctly, Our finiteness leads us not just to appreciation, but if you really lean into it, terror. This is why I love astrophysics so much. Like, like all this is true as, as our psalmist is conceiving who this God is based on the creation that he sees. But now we can see so much more and it's far grander than even, than even we previously thought. And every time we throw a new telescope up there and look out deeper, it's even grander and more beautiful than we ever thought. Astrophysics sobers us to the reality of a holy God and takes us deeper into it even, in, in my opinion. An analogy that I like to use to describe God's holiness is the sun. The sun is this incredibly unique and and powerful source of energy and life. It's powerful. It's beautiful. It sources life. It's holy. And and the analogy continues because we could even say that the space around the sun is holy. And, And the closer you get to the sun, the more intense it gets. And so we find that the sun is this incredible source that has the power to sustain life but it also has the power to kill if you get too close. We find the same thing with the people who encountered God in the scriptures. God's presence is dangerous. And that's not because he's bad, but because of quite the opposite. Because he is good and pure and and right. This intense, creating, powerful, good entity which sources life, if approached too closely, will kill that's God's holiness. It's rooted in the fact that he's completely, he's in a completely different category of being than us, than anything in creation. And so this becomes even more of a problem when humans rebel against his rule. And so, so when God shows up to Moses in the burning bush, he shouts at him, don't come any closer, Moses. Subtext, I'm holy. If you get too close to me, you're going to die. We see the same thing with the holies of holies, first in the Jewish tabernacle and then in the temple. Don't get too close to me. Only once a year someone can come close and only if they follow the rule of this law down to the left. Don't get too close to me, I'll kill you. 
It's where God's presence was, his unfiltered holiness. You see, the holiness of God means that when we approach him, our sin gets highlighted. It gets, it gets brought to the forefront. We see it. Take the prophet Isaiah, for instance. Isaiah had a vision where he entered into the throne room of God, and his knee-jerk reaction was, I'm dead. I'm ruined. I've flown too close to the sun. I'm a man of unclean lips, and even if I wasn't, I live among a people with unclean lips, and just association with them makes me too impure for this holiness. Surely, I will not survive this encounter. He entered God's holy space and concluded his life was over. Have you had that experience as a follower of God? I remember the first time I had it. I remember being in worship and being confronted with this incredible, powerful, eternal, just big God. And as I considered myself, I saw the unclean lips. I saw the darkness within me. I saw my twistedness. I saw my sin. And, and I couldn't help but see the impossibility of, of, of just being with this thing, this just big thing. Have you felt that before? That's brushing up against God's holiness. And this is why the psalm starts the way that it does. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He is enthroned. Let the earth do what? Quake. Why? Because when God shows up, who can stand in his midst? He is holy. The thought of the creator of the universe showing up here should inspire terror on some level. Is, is this not radically different than how our society conceives of God? This is a broad, broad generalization, but our society conceives of God as closest to what figure? Santa Claus. Santa Claus. People don't think that he is holy. That's God's holiness. It's the power and purity that a being must have that has created such an immense and beautiful creation. He's in a different, terrifying category altogether, and to be in his presence is dangerous. So that's the definition. Now let's look at what his holiness produces in the world. This is what we see in verses 3 through 5. Um, well, let's back up to verse 2. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted above all the peoples. Let them praise your name, or let them praise your great and awe-inspiring name. He is holy. The mighty king loves justice. You have established fairness. You have administered justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Bow and worship at his footstool. He is holy. Two things pop up here in response to God's holiness. The first is exaltation. The second is justice. Let's start with exaltation. Praise. Why does it move to praise? Well, when one comes to real, realize the holiness of this incredible, powerful, life-giving, and beauty-creating being, one naturally exalts, exalts which means lift high. Why is that? Well, first, because when we truly begin to grasp God's holiness, the, the, his incredible uh, greatness and distinction and pure, like perfect purity as, as a being that's created all of these beautiful things, it's the only natural thing we can do. Did you see in verse 2? It says, the Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted. And so let us exalt him. He is exalted in the only natural Conclusion, and when you truly see God as exalted, is to exalt him, to lift him high, to worship. How amazing is this being? How incredible, we say. Exalting means to lift him high in praise when we gather together, but also, and this comes from Deuteronomy 6, to talk about him often. 
Perhaps as often as when you rise up and when you go to bed, when you sit in your house and when you, lo- when you walk along the road, to create physical markers that inspire uh, additional conversation about him, markers that you would bump into all the time. Is this part of your life? No? Well, perhaps you're not grasping his exalted state. Perhaps you are not grasping his holiness. Not exalting God is a symptom of not considering his exalted holy state. People exalt the sun when we see it shine in Seattle for nine months out of the year. You know, this past week or so, we've been cursing the sun. But the rest of the year, we exalt the sun when we see it. We try to get close to it. We just want it to shine on our faces a little bit longer. We tell people how incredible is it that the sun is out. It's so wonderful and beautiful. God is always shining, my friends. Do you exalt him? Here's the reality of being human that you just can't get away from. You, you just can't. You exalt whatever you consider most important in life. We like to say that consideration is the first step to worship here, and those things that occupy the center of your being, you actually can't help but lift high. What do you lift up as the pinnacle of the human experience? What are you always talking about? What are you always trying to invite people to or sell people on? What do you lift up most in life? If you knew me the couple of months after I got a new Quip toothbrush, man, I was exalting the Quip toothbrush. Oh, it's amazing. It's amazing. Do you lift up the awesome creator of the universe? Now, if you would say, well, no, not really. Don't hear this as a challenge to try harder and like set reminders on your phone to do it. Hear this as an invitation to press into and encounter a holy, exalted God. God is exalted despite whether you exalt him or not. You see that? But, but when you truly begin to see him as exalted, your exaltation comes very naturally. So praise and exaltation. That's the first thing that God's holiness produces in the world. When we see him as he is in his exalted holy state, when we appreciate and encounter him for, as who he is, exalted, we exalt him. You probably caught the second thing his holiness produces. It's right there in verse 4. Justice, again. Fairness, again. Justice and righteousness. Do you see that? God's holy presence and his justice, they're wed together. You can't have God's presence, his holy presence, without his justice showing up. That's part of the problem. That's why humans couldn't be in his presence. His justice would judge and eliminate our evil. But similarly, you can't have true and perfect justice without God's presence. The two are intrinsically wed together. The justice language pops out to us as 21st century readers in a Western society, but this passage is dripping with the language of presence as well. God is great where? In Zion. Where do people bow and worship him? At his footstool. At his footstool. Where is he enthroned between the cherubim? And if you're not a student of the Bible, you might confuse these things as like spiritualizations of, of these are kind of spiritual places. But no, Zion is the name of Jerusalem. His footstool, a poetic name for Jerusalem. A real place, a city, still exists. The cherubim, this is not a heavenly reference at all. We, when we actually walked through the book of Exodus, we talked about the construction of the, of the ark. We did this last year. The construction of the ark. On top of the Ark of the Covenant where the tablets rested of the Ten Commandments. This box that was laid with gold, with a gold top. What's on top? Two cherubim. 
And how are those things configured on top of the ark? Wings in, touching each other. It's conceived of God's throne. It's also called the mercy seat. This is where God sat down in the holies of holies in the temple of Jerusalem. The Ark of the Covenant is his throne. It's his physical throne placed in a physical place, presence language. And these five verses are really nothing short of the author telling the world God's presence is in a real place. It's in Jerusalem on top of the Ark of the Covenant. The most powerful creating being of the universe is housed here. Come and exalt, a, exalt him with us. And what happened? Justice was served in Israel. Fairness was found on, on levels that it had never been found before. We had never seen provisions up to this point in history. Provisions in the law for slaves before. Several sets of provision in the Hebrew law for slaves, including one that said, let him go after six years. What? That's crazy. Before Israel arrived on the scene, no kingdom had a set of laws protecting foreigners and aliens in the land. Wow. Wow. Before the, before the Jewish law, no laws came close to protecting women like Israelite law. God's presence produced Produces justice. Queen Sheba is kind of the, the textbook example. We go look in the Bible. This is in 1 Kings 10, I think. Queen Sheba, she, she, she shows up on the scene. She's from Ethiopia region. Shows up into Israel. To check out what's going on. She's heard rumors. And she exclaims to Solomon. She says, how happy your people must be. The love of Yahweh is everywhere. Look at how you maintain justice. Look at how you administer Fairness among these people. You see, God was there. And so justice was there. His holiness means his presence and his justice are intertwined together. You can't have God without his justice. You can't have his justice without him. He's holy. So that's what holiness is. Okay? That's what holiness produces. Exaltation. Justice. And those are some fine and dandy intellectual points, historical considerations. It's fine and dandy. And you're like, is this guy really sandbagging his own sermon? Yeah. Because this next point is so incredible. So beautiful. And it has to do with what we see in verse 3. End of verse 3 here. Let them praise your great and awe-inspiring name. He is holy. The name of the Lord the name of the Lord. This really here is, it, it, now we start to unpack how does God's holiness interact with humans? We have a name. What do humans have? Names. Names. We're going to start seeing these names interact here. It's absolutely stunning. It's absolutely beautiful. It's absolutely mind-boggling. Now, if, if we were to go, through, if we were to think through the Old Testament and ask the question, where is God's name? What's the most popular reference to God's name in the Old Testament? It's the third commandment. Shall not take the name of the Lord in vain. Probably everybody who's been a Christian for any amount of time probably says, oh, yep, that's one of the Ten Commandments. Shall not take the name of the Lord in vain. We don't really know what to do with that phrase. It's a little bit awkward of a phrase. 
Um, some translations put the, the, the word misuse in there, which captures kind of the notion like you don't say, the, say Jesus Christ or oh my God when, unless you're actually talking about him. And, and, and surely that in, includes it, but it doesn't really capture the sense of what's going on here. It's not, the commandment isn't uh, do not say the name of the Lord in vain, but do not take it in vain. What is this talking about here? What is this talking about? And to understand that, um, I think it's always most clear the Hebrew notion of, of what they came to mind when they thought of what it means to take the name of the Lord on. It's most helpful to go to, to Numbers chapter 6. Uh, and this was going to be on the screen, but I, I can read it over you. I don't feel like you have to flip there. We're just going to be a couple verses here. Um, but if you've heard of the Aaronic blessing, the blessing that God says Aaron and his priests are to say over the people when they come to corporate worship. That, that's what's here in Numbers chapter 6. And, and this kind of function is even carried nowadays often in churches. You'll see like pastors come up and give a benediction to close the service. This is kind of the, the same kind of uh, function and kind of force of what's happening here, a kind of a blessing over the people, the, the ironic blessing. And it goes like this. The Lord spoke to Moses. Tell Aaron and his sons, this is how you are to bless the Israelites. You should say to them, may the Lord bless you and protect you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look with favor on you and give you peace. In this way, here's here's God's comment on what's actually happening here. In this way, they will put my name on the Israelites and I will bless them. In this way, they will put my name on the Israelites, and I will bless them. So what does it mean not to take on the name of the Lord in vain? What does that mean? It means don't call yourself a God person if you're not committed to living a God life. That, that's probably the central thrust of it. We actually dove into that. We, we went through the book of Exodus, and we did uh, the, the Ten Commandments. And we, we went through, and we kind of unpacked this meaning of it. it. means if you don't take God's name placed upon, don't take it on you if you're really not hoping to live a God life faithful to him in the world. Now, now, now no one's perfect, so, so we all fall short, fall short in that. And, and, but, but taking on God's name has everything to do with representing who he is to the world. And one of those things is his holiness. It's his holiness with obeying his commands. In a certain sense, it feels impossible. How am I, the, holiness, the thing that's rooted in God's power and perfection, let me see if, you, if I can get this straight. I'm supposed to take that characteristic on myself? Like the whole point of his holiness is that he's something completely altogether different than me. How can this actually happen? Jesus in his, um, uh, his Lord's Prayer, how does he start the prayer? He says, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your name be seen as holy. May, may, may your people, when they have it on, may your holiness be in view in some sense. Then later in the Sermon on the Mount, he says this, he says, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect which is an obvious throwback to this refrain that we see happen over and over in the Old Testament. Be holy as I am holy. Impossibility. Do you feel the impossibility of that? It's said over and over and over again in the Bible. It's it's impossible. It feels impossible tying it to his name. In Leviticus chapter 22, God says this to his people, you are to keep my commands and to do them. I am the Lord. You must not profane my holy name. Here, third commandment. Don't take on the name of the Lord in vain. 
I must be treated as holy among the Israelites because I am the Lord who sets you apart. So, so how I am holy compared to all creation, you as a people are to be holy compared to all the other nations. I set you apart from the other peoples. Wow. How is this possible? How is this possible? And we see him fall short of it over and over and over again. Even the best of them. Did you see in our psalm here? Moses and Samuel are brought up. Even their, their sin is highlighted. God corrected them when they messed up. And so we ourselves fall short over and over. It's, it's a problem. And one of the main themes of the Old Testament is this holy God wants to return to a holy people so that they can be together, but his people just can't do it. They can't do it. We can't do it. In the pages of this Old Testament, we, we uncover a holy God that humans have to stay away from so that we can stay alive. And, and so part of his leaving is his grace. I can't be around you. I kill you. Sure, if they stay away from impure things, we kind of read through the, whole, through the law, maybe they have a chance. Maybe they have a chance, but they just can't. These impure things make us impure, which revokes our ticket to encounter God. It's bad news. It's really bad news, especially when we read that the Lord reigns and that he's coming to, to reign as king in full one day. That's a problem. Absent the promises of God that like, hey, this is going to work out one day, it's a completely terrifying proposition, one that steeps us into despair and hopelessness. But every now and then, we get a glimpse of an encounter that lets us know there is hope. Call Isaiah when I talked to that, that I brought up earlier. He's in the throne room of God. I'm going to die. I've flown too close to the sun. I'm a man of unclean lips. What happens next? These seraphim, which are these kind of crazy creatures. I have no idea what they looked like. It's very strange creatures around the throne of God. They pick up a coal underneath the throne. And they bring it to his lips and they say this. They, they say something that's purely incredible. They say, your sin has been atoned for. And Isaiah doesn't die. And, and if, 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 if you're a Jewish reader, a Hebrew reader, you're thinking, whoa, that's backwards. That's not how purity works. You take something that's clean and you touch it to something that's unclean. That clean thing becomes unclean. Something backwards has happened. That pure thing comes into contact with impure Isaiah. Isaiah becomes pure. What? It's backwards. It's completely backwards. And this is a glimpse, among others in the Old Testament, of how holiness can work. Moses' face coming down the Mount Sinai. It's glowing. His face has become more pure. What? It's backwards. It's backwards. The Old Testament gives us the, the bad news, of course, that God is holy, we are not, and we are estranged, but then it gives us glimpses of hope that there must be a little bit of good news out there because we see holiness not killing people, but purifying them. Whoa. Whoa, holiness is getting transferred to humanity? How can this be? Remember when I told you about that time when I experienced God's holiness, just this this bigness of God, and I felt a little bit of just the terror of it, this being. Do you know what happened next? I felt him wrap his arms around me. Whoa. Who is this God that extends 
holy. How could that happen? Who is this God that extends holiness like this? I received what Isaiah had received. My sin was removed and atoned for so that I could embrace this holy God. How? Because Jesus Christ is the coal. Jesus Christ comes down as the holy God. He interacts with impure humanity. He comes around sick people. And instead of getting sick himself, he heals them. He comes around unclean people, characterized as unclean by the ceremonial law of, 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 the, of the Torah. And what happens? He doesn't become unclean. He cleans them up. He comes into the house of sinners, Zacchaeus. That sin doesn't, doesn't start sinning. He says, no, my salvation has come to this house. Whoa. See, on the cross, our impurity is transferred to his holy body. He is the coal that's come and taken our iniquity upon himself. He removed it from us, and it gets burnt up with him in his death. And that's how the holiness of God interacts with us now. God's holiness, it comes to us, and it doesn't kill us. Instead, it purifies us. It purifies us. So where the Old Testament points to the problem of God's holiness, separation between us, the New Testament written after the cross of Christ points to its solution. Jesus called it the good news. The good news. The kingdom of God was coming. The Lord reigns. He says the kingdom's coming. The Lord reigns. He's showing up. But there's something you can do. You can repent and believe the gospel. You can repent and believe the gospel. then you can have holiness extended to you. Then your sin can be atoned for, and whatever he touches will be made holy. That's called repenting and believing the gospel. And so how do you acknowledge your impurity, I guess? Like, what does this actually look like, repenting and believing the gospel? Well, you need to come into contact with the holy God. We're really dependent upon God to show up and for us to see that gap that exists between us. You could do all the soul-searching you want, I guess is what I'll say, But until you get a glimpse of the perfect, you're never really going to know how deep the sin is. So you ask God to show himself to you. It's that simple. Jesus said, everyone who seeks finds. Everyone who knocks, the doors, everyone who asks receives, everyone who knocks, the door will be open. We ask to encounter God, and he always shows up. He always shows up. Always. Well, let me tell you, it's a scary, scary prayer to pray. It's good. It's a thrill when it happens. You'll never forget it. It's a little scary, though. Now, what does this mean fully for us now as like a church, as we consider, like, consider our role in the world? How does this, kind of touched on it briefly, how does this holiness actually come to us? What is it, like God clearly wants to accomplish something through us here in all this. What does it fully mean for us? And for that, we need to lean on another vision that's in the Old Testament. It comes from Ezekiel chapter 47. Ezekiel had this pretty intense vision in Ezekiel chapter 47 where he saw the temple of God. It's where God's presence was, remember? Holy of holies, ark, cherubim, God's throne. He has a vision of this temple. And then he says, I had a vision that out of the east wall, water started leaking out, presence of God. started leaking out of the temple, and it was a stream, and I walked it this far, and it was only ankle deep. I walked it this far, it was knee deep, walked this far, kind of like my experience with my brother-in-law. 
just deeper and deeper and deeper. And it was going east and east from Jerusalem. It's this body of water called the Dead Sea. And along the way, he, he recounts all of this, this life happening. Trees are growing. Sea creatures are living in this water. And then it hits the Dead Sea. And the Dead Sea was this salt, it still is, this salty, rancid place where nothing can grow. But he says, this water, this holy presence of God, enters into the Red Sea, the Dead Sea, and it changes it. It becomes a place of life. It, it, now, he, it's really interesting. He says, like, not all of it has changed. It's like some of the marshes are still bad, is what he says. But it becomes a place of life. And, and all the sea creatures of the earth were there in swarms. And plants are growing like crazy. And, and, and this, this presence of God has gone to the darkest, most life-void place on earth and has completely reversed it to a place where now it's thriving and exploding with life. Big idea. God's holiness is greater than any impurity. Any impurity you can think of, God's holiness is greater, and it has more power to transform it than, than, the, than the impurity of being able to persist. It has, it has the power to change any impurity. And Jesus picked up on this vision in John chapter 7, and he looked at his disciples he said this, he says, anyone who believes in me will have streams of living water flow from deep within them and out of them. What does this mean? Well, John gives us a little editorial comment. He says, Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. It, it, the Spirit carries a holiness that we have within us, like the coal in Isaiah, like the stream and Ezekiel, akin to, to the person of Christ. It flows through us and out of us and comes into contact with, with dead, and dark dead and dark things, and it makes them alive, living, bright. The holiness of God flows through us to the dead and dark places of the world. This is God's plan on how his holiness is to be encountered in the world, through his people. It's not just one illustration it's all the Old Testament illustrations. His coal, his river, his temple. The, the church together as well as us individually are temples of the living Holy Spirit of God meant to bless the world. And so we find that very quality of God, his holiness, which is completely other, something that we could never grasp and, and understand and, and honestly never have, but instead, we are actually directly responsible for that quality going out into the world, for stewarding it to the rest of the world. It's one of the greatest paradoxes of the faith. That, that, that a holy God creates beings that are finite, that by definition aren't holy even before they sin, and he wants to work his holiness through them to reach the rest of the world even the darkest parts of the world. It's, it's one of the most enormous paradoxes in these pages. So, so like a river into the Dead Sea, friends, no one is too far gone. If you're sitting here today and you say, not me, I've done this, you, you don't know my impurities. You don't know how rancid the Dead Sea was. That, that place is nasty. No one is too far gone. It's a lie. So often in, in pastoral counseling comes up, people say, yeah, but there's this one thing God could never forgive. No, 
No, it's a lie. God's holiness is greater than your sin. So much greater than your sin, and he wants to transfer it to you. And then no one is too far gone. Your friend that you think is too far gone, that's a lie. No one is too far gone. I had the opportunity over these past couple years in COVID to just have a phone conversation with an old friend from the past who's not a Christian, but seeing God reveal himself to him more and more and having phone calls with him and becoming a Christian over these past few years. And one of the big pressure points of him becoming a Christian was his twin brother, who was like, what are you doing? I can't believe you're becoming a Christian and making fun of him for it and, and keeping him at arm's length. And, and so we talked about it a lot and, and, he, and we were working through the Sermon on the Mount and he said, you know what, I think I, think I need to pray for my brother. His brother, I mean, his life, so, he'd be someone you'd look at and be like, there's no way. There's no way. A couple months ago, do you know what happened? God showed up and he heard, I am coming back. Get your life in order. Whoa! Guess who went to church with his twin brother that Sunday? You see, God shows up and everything changes. Everything changes. No one is too far gone. It's beautiful. It's incredible. And God is using us. God is using us to extend his holy reach into the world. Extend his holy reach through his spirit to touch those who desperately need purification. And so as, as we conceive of ourselves, our place in this world, our place under this holy God, I, like a fool, hold out this promise that all the scriptures command and even say can happen, that we too can be holy. And it's actually the crux of God's mission on earth. Let's pray.